Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. And we're live. It's uh, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 12.30 Central, 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 5.30 UTC. Hello to wherever you are. We've got zero eyeballs Oh, that's a shame. No one likes us. Am I connected? <laughs> it's fine. This was bound to happen eventually. Uh, and and we've peaked. There we go. We, we got peaked one. at 10. First. We got to 11 for one episode, and now we've gone to zero. It's been a, a – we are the shale producer without any cash flow. There we go. We got some – there we go. We got some numbers now. There we go. All right, boys. Who wants Who's to do the intro? Everyone? I think I'll do the intro this week. All right. Yeah. All right. Welcome to Value After Hours this week. I'm one of your hosts, Jake Taylor. We've got uh, Toby Carlisle. What are you going to be talking about, Toby? I uh, had a uh, just a little humble break. Had a chat to uh, Cliff Asness last week. Going to be coming up on the podcast. Uh, one of the really interesting things from the last paper that Cliff and his colleagues wrote, The Death of Systematic Value was this analysis of how important fundamentals are. So it's not necessarily a question about value. It's just a question about the relationship between fundamentals to prices, how predictive it is. Uh, I think it's a really fascinating little part of that paper. And so I'm going to talk about that in depth. And my esteemed co-host, Bill Brewster, what do you got for us, Bill? Far from esteemed, but uh, I think I'm going to talk about United Airlines because I know everybody wants to hear about United's <laughs> debt package, big package <laughs> in United. All right. And uh, what are you doing, JT? Uh, my my veggie segment is going to be economic lessons from a ghost town. Oh. Boo. In California, or just yeah, generally? Actually, no, a, a mining town. Mm-hmm. You're getting right. warmer. You want to get into right. it? Let's get into it. Yeah, let's let's after this. Right after this. Right. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Terrible. How we do it? Grace Mesa, great song. How do you turn our intro music into a clown car song? <laughs> <laughs> appropriate. Probably appropriate. Appropriate. Fair, yeah. <laughs> you right. you want to do it, JT? I'm kind of intrigued. I like those little mining ghost towns in uh, in California. Which yeah. one are you talking All about right. specifically? This one is a little town called Bodie, California, B-O-D-I-E. And uh, a couple summers ago, we, uh, I took the family on a little RV trip and we stopped by there. And it's, the place is pretty crazy because it's, it's down on, if you know the eastern side of the Sierras, it's down this uh, highway at 395. And, and it, it, uh, the place is about as close as you can get to Mars in the United States, I think. So it's like you're up on this uh, kind of a plateau, and so it's it's windy as shit. Like it's a hundred mile an hour wind sometimes there. Mm. It's it has it's tied with some other place in Alaska for it averages three hundred days a year where it's below freezing overnight. Oof. 
Yeah, and that's because you're at 8,000 feet elevation. Oh. Right, so it's pretty in Why is it abandoned? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Can't figure out why this went wrong. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in 1879, uh, it, it was found in 1876, and it peaked in 1879. So like you had a three-year boom here, basically. And what's nice about this is that it uh, – why it's good for economics lessons – is that it's it's a very self-contained little kind of universe to study, and it also has, um, you know, this rapid boom and bust that happened, and then the uh, the gold that was the reason why people came there will help inform some of the things that we're going to learn. So, a um, couple quick stats on it: it peaked with seven thousand people, had like two thousand buildings, and uh, the there were sixty-five saloons on a one-mile stretch in the main area. So. Gives you if you know you thought it's you had my a kind of town. drinking problem. Yeah. COVID. <laughs> bunch of dudes just hammering rock and getting hammered. Pretty much, yeah. So now, like, uh, let's let's transport ourselves to that time period, 1879. We're walking down the street, looking around. How does it get decided what we want to consume now versus what we consume later? Is there any, there's no central planner that's telling you, you know, you need to go have a drink now or do you, you know, go build something? Um, Well, 65 saloons, I guess, is a a bit of a hint. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I Um, mean, dude, your life probably sucks. I'd just get drunk all day and then I'd go hammer some rock and try to get some gold out of the ground. And then I'd hope to God I could stop that process. It would be bad. And probably probably most people would be dying super young. Yeah, I mean, you you probably have a shorter time preference than than what we might have today, right? Like you'd be more in favor of consuming now. But um, so let's assume that you you know the more that you save for later is the more basically the more supply of capital that's available for later, which then lowers the price of capital for later, right? And so, what do you call these coordinating prices between today and tomorrow? We have a name for them. You talking about interest rates? That's correct, Bill. Thank I'm going to send you a prize. Thank interest you. Interest rates are the prices that coordinate time preferences between us. What we want to do with our capital now, our consumption now versus later. Okay. So let's assume that uh, that there's more investment today versus consumption, and you know you could actually think about wood as a pretty good little proxy for this world because being that it drops below you know 30 degrees 300 days a year you need wood to keep warm overnight most likely or you can use it to go say build a saloon or whatever so we have a very real like consume now versus build for later uh dynamic that's happening with pieces of wood right so um let's say that uh there's a gold rush which happens right and now Gold actually flows into the banks that are inside of this little town. And by the way, there was a Wells Fargo there at that point. Um, so just shout out to when the when the brand was strong. They had they had fourteen thousand accounts taking taking advantage of customers for, for hundreds of years, folks. Yeah, it's a good one. So, well, I am going to make this a little more realistic because just like today, there, you know, the, as more deposits come in they counterfeit that money, right, to create more. This is just how how fractional reserve banking works. Uh, And it's no different than 
than it was back then. If you brought in a, you deposited a piece of gold, they may loan out more pieces of paper against that gold. As long as no one comes back all at the same time to get claim their gold back, it, it works out fine, right? So now, as with a gold rush like that, what what's actually doing is it's lowering the rates that are that are hap that are, the interest rates there because it's like an increase of the supply of money, so to speak. Well. Let's pretend that an enterprising young businessman comes, goes to the bank and he decides, I want to build the biggest hotel in all of Bodie, California. And he borrows the money from Wells Fargo and he builds this, this big hotel. And so do nine other people. They build these giant hotels. They see this boom. They think they're getting out in front of it, right? Well, what happens when it's 1880, right, a year later, and they have these hotels and there are no customers to pay for, to come stay in the hotels because the boom is over, right? Well, Wells Fargo has more branches. Is that, <laughs> yeah. is that one's loan loss reserves are going up? They've opened another seven thousand accounts too. Yeah, you're you're hoping that that one's in one LLC or C corp and you can fold it. That's right. So there's no there's no way to service that debt, right? The debt now basically has to be destroyed. That capital is disappeared. We need new ownership, most likely, of these hotels. But there's a that malinvestment took place, and the real reason, like this, is very analogous to what we see today with the Fed, basically creating a gold rush in a way. Um, you know, they 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 lower the rate of interest for everyone. And by the way, that hotel, that enterprising entrepreneur. He could, if he saw that the interest rate was 10% to borrow the money, it's most likely that he would say, oh, well, my project doesn't really pencil out at a 10% rate. And, but when it's 1%, all of a sudden my project makes sense. So, and the nine other guys looked at that same math and did the math and came up with uh, that it was going to work or not based on that low rate versus a high rate. Well, we, it, we get to the future period, and it turns out that that low rate was a bit of a mirage and that people didn't actually want that much hotel space. And so you know, we end up with what, what economists would call a confluence of entrepreneurial errors. Why does everyone make a mistake all at the same time? It's because the low rates told them, it gave them the green light that this was a good project, right? That people wanted to consume things more later than they do now, which is what a low interest rate is telling him. Right. But if it's a fake, if it's a head fake of a low interest rate, now we get everyone building things that we don't actually end up wanting. So one of the things that's kind of amusing to me is that why do if Greenpeace knew what was really going on in the world, they'd be protesting the Fed. There'd be people out there in front of the Fed protesting at all times because the Fed has really is pulling so much from the future. They're greatly increasing the chances that we use people, energy, capital, material, and tax the environment in a way that ends up being not building the things that we all wanted, right? We send all these green lights to everybody and they build things that turns out that we didn't actually want, right? So uh, it's so amazing to me to think that you could take all the consumer tastes, like every, all of our things change all the time, like what we want to buy. Um, take all the time preferences of, you know, do you want to save a little bit more money now versus later? We take 
you know, the labor force, the skills as they change, as people move, like you don't go tell the Fed, hey, I'm planning on moving to Colorado next week. Does that work out with your model okay? Um, and we take all this stuff, uh, including like resources that we discover or deplete, and we we have all of these things happening. And the idea then that we try to enforce stability on this kind of a system that is changing so much is to me is so asinine and it, it it really gets to what hayek called like the fatal conceit to think that you could understand and try to keep stability when there's all these factors changing is just the height of of being conceited um so we're you know that leaves us with where we are today which is we are doing everything in our power basically to stop the liquidation of that bad debt that can't be repaid because we had all this boom time and probably a lot of malinvestment. Like how much how much retail do, space do we have in the United States that we probably don't need at the moment? I think it's quite a bit. Like we, all of these things have been built that are probably ahead of where any of us ever needed them or wanted them or the world changed. How much office space do we have now that we may not need as much because working from home is all of a sudden much more palatable. The long story of this. Oh, go ahead. You had a. Oh, I've just got. I've got a few questions, but I want to wait until you finished. I've just got a few devil's advocate positions. Yeah. But I'll wait until you're done. I probably can't. Probably can't answer them. But go ahead. <laughs> well, the first one was uh, in this in this uh, in this town. I don't know if this is if this is the analogy part or if this is the case. When you got your gold and you deposited your gold, you weren't storing your gold in a lockbox. They were giving you some sort of rate on your gold. Is that is that you would you were depositing it as money. You would deposit the gold, and they'd give you a piece of paper that said, "We own this piece of gold for you." Now you can go out in the world and trade it with other people. You can for show that to other people. Saloon. Right. Yeah. And, and at any time, you could go take that down to the bank and say, "I would like my gold back, please." And then the the way that they're creating money is they're lending against the the gold that's in there as well. So you deposit the gold, they give you cash for it, and then. They will also lend against your gold that's deposited there. So why not be able to just give two pieces of paper for every one piece of gold? So that's no what they're problem. doing. As long right. as as long as no one comes back, as long as two pieces of paper don't come back at the same time, we can figure this out. As long as there's no run, so, right? And so your gold yeah. is fungible in this instance. You put it in, you just like I'm going to get some gold back, not the gold that I've put in my lockbox. Yeah, this right. is just fractional reserve banking. Yeah, I was just, I just, just wanted to make sure that that was the, the uh, just understanding the uh, the analogy properly. Yeah, so, and then you know you dial up how many pieces of paper you can give. Right now, we're not allowing banks to give as much pieces of paper as we used to, so the banking system is less levered than it used to be. But I digress. So the the next question that I have, this is uh, so they build ten hotels at once. Like that, that's not. You know, we've got two or we've got multiple electric car companies at the moment, right? Are we building multiple electric car companies because it doesn't cost that much to build an electric car company, but, you know, it costs, let's say it costs a billion dollars to build an electric car company, but in the market, maybe it costs even less than that. You just got to tell people that you're going to do it and you get a gigantic valuation. So sure. that is telling, that's the market telling people that they want more of these things, right? Which is what inspires the overbuilding. Is it that? Is that more important than interest rates, or how how do they fit together? Uh, well, I think a couple things to to think about there. So, like to go back to our our little you know town, our ghost town. If you think about the lowered rates, which ends up happening, 
all that money now is out there and it's bidding up the price of labor, supply, uh, all the factors of production now are more expensive. And so it looks temporarily like things are more profitable than they are, right? Like you, you end up with an over profitability estimation at that point. Now, when it comes due, when it's actually time to, uh, when, so the other thing to, to take away from this is that the closer that you are to the consumer with your product or service, the less variability there is in these booms and busts that can occur. And the farther away you are, the longer your timeline from when production actually gets to the consumer, the more variance there is in how big the boom and bust can get. So that's why you know commodities tend to have much bigger boom and bust cycles than say like retail, um, historically. Is that true? I mean, isn't part of the commodity thing it's just so easy to recreate? And retail is like historically sort of a distribution advantage, and yeah, got to set up like uh, suppliers and whatnot. I mean, I, I guess the thing that I keep thinking about is like in this analogy, the, what you have to allow eventually is for the lenders to go broke because the lenders are the one that are increasing aggregate credit. Uh, I mean, if you know, if this guy's hotel goes down the dumps. He still transferred money to employees and stuff to buy it or, or to build it. There was still money that went to the people that supplied the commodities. There was logistics. I mean, the only people it's just a, it seems to me to be a wealth transfer. Obviously, once you add on like all the fractional reserve banking stuff, then you get a problem if it's systemic. But uh, wouldn't you be better, better off building something that's going to be useful in the future, though? Yeah, but I don't I mean, I just don't know that you can say I mean, that hotel I agree that there is overbuild. I mean, I don't. I don't think like overcapacity is a new story. I just don't know that I necessarily agree that there's like all this waste going on. I don't disagree that there's some malinvestment, and I think people are way pushed out on the risk spectrum because, to your point, Toby, like you've got people that are looking for some return, and some of the people that are looking for return are pension funds and they're underfunded and they have obligations that they have to go to. So maybe they don't have the choice to not lend. Like there, there are motivating reasons that are causing behavior. But it seems to me if you let the lenders get wiped out in this scenario, uh, a lot of this stuff fixes itself. Well, I've got the solution. What that town needs is a central bank. And what they do is they go and buy up all of the debt. But because they can't buy the debt, directly they need some sort of etf to stand in between that etf buys up all the debt then they buy units in that etf problem solved yeah well look man this is uh this is part of why i railed against corporate debt and then if we rewind to march i thought corporate debt might actually own everything so uh i don't know what i know but this is why i haven't liked corporate debt because i think it's hard to argue that the spreads aren't artificially compressed you don't like the fact that the fed is buying berkshire hathaway debt and apple debt I doubt they're buying that. I think there's enough indirectly for that. I think I think they're probably buying United more than Berkshire. <laughs> I, I don't know that the yeah, Fed it's not about return Berkshire. of like, the people money. People are okay holding that. I think they need to step in in the places that no one wants. Uh, but isn't that the signal that it needs to be liquidated and that we well, like we need to to clean it out so we can start from a fresh base no, as mean, opposed to. This same conversation we had three months ago. I look if they, the... if they sustainably support zombie companies ad infinitum. I agree with you. Right now, 
we're in the middle of a pandemic and cases are spiking again. Like, I don't think this is the time to, to say all of our policies that have led up to this. Now we're going to get religion and start a deflationary bust in the middle of a pandemic. No, I, I think that's horribly flawed policy. Might be ni- nice in a textbook. It's, it would be terrible for society. You'd have people running out of their house. You'd have people like totally freaked the fuck out in the middle of a pandemic that's what you actually think we should do like that's insane birds flying Uh, backwards with the textbook i mean i you know that's fair i think the problem the problem was the 10 years before that yeah i don't disagree that's like i was saying yesterday about this you know this uh don't extend the unemployment benefits like the idea that 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 is being floated today like, no, we shouldn't have had trillion-dollar deficits for the last three years. You're going to, like, throw people out on the street now? Like, that's inhumane. Uh, the problem is all the shit that we did that led up to this. Sorry, I ranted. That's a good rant. No dispute for me. Did, did I did I cut you off, JT? Do you have con- uh, concluding no, thoughts? Uh, well, just one other thing that, uh, you know, you think about all those hotels that were built in our little ghost town that now sit there as a, as a state park monument. And those counted as GDP, by the way. And like, you know, we're cheered, but that's why GDP is such a stupid measurement. Well, I can keep the GDP up. What we do is we go and chop those, ho- we hire guys to chop those hotels down, burn them for firewood, rebuild go. them. Build them again. <laughs> that's right. With government stimmy. And uh, I get my first vote for, uh, for Federal Reserve Board Governor. Fed chairman. You're a shoo-in. Yeah. I know how this stuff works. This is easy. Get GDP right up. I can really get GDP red hot. I actually, I'm going to steal the next segment because I actually yeah. think this is sort of an interesting. Do it. Uh, I, think, I think I can segue pretty decently. So the United bond offer or is, I, the debt offering. I don't know if, I mean, I think it's bonds, but whatever. It's the debt or, uh, offering. Look it up. I tweeted about it last night. It is insanely interesting. So what we're talking about, about like people getting pushed out on the risk spectrum and everything that Grants has been writing about for like the past three years about how like there's no uh, covenants in bonds and the asset transfers and stuff have been like that your your ability to transfer assets out of the entity on the equity side is has exploded as people have continued to chase yield and like people last year were buying united bonds yielding like four to five percent right well there were no i don't know that there were no restrictions on asset transfers but it's hard for me to think that there were a ton and this also occurred uh goldman shout out to you guys because you did a solid job structuring this deal they basically transferred the intellectual property from the mileage plus accounts into a bankruptcy remote entity. Okay, so the lenders of this new debt issuance, I think it was like 6.3 billion is what it was upsized to, and I think the interest rate's roughly 3%. They have a direct claim on that entity, which is the mileage plus account. The way the mileage plus account works is, Mileage Plus pays United one cent for every dollar it acquires. United gives Mileage Plus two cents. So it's basically like a 50% gross profit entity. It's got some SG&A on it, but it's probably 40% free cash flow margins. And it's got a float component to it. 
So if you can actually buy the argument that it's a separate business, which I'm not fully there on, I view them as pretty tied, but in a lot of places they are separate businesses. Um, like that's a pretty good entity. And that was just transferred outside of United's asset base and fully leaned up. And the bondholders that used to get bonds that yielded like four to 5% just got like totally screwed out of one of the best assets that United has. Now, I mean, United has $20 billion of liquidity or something like that. And I bought the same bonds that those people bought, but mine are yielding 10% yield to maturity. And I view it almost like equity. It's just shocking to me that there were no restrictions on one of the greatest assets that the company had. And here they need the money. And like, I mean, I don't see how you don't feel screwed if you own those bonds through all this. But you did it to yourself. Like, read the fucking documents. <laughs> That's life. rule one. Like, it it's not like it was hidden, but it's just crazy that that has happened. And I think it's such a good illustration of, like, Jim Grant has been writing and writing and writing for, like, two years about how these companies can transfer assets out of the company and the bondholders can get screwed. And this is, like, the best example that I've seen. And I really, regardless of whether or not you like airlines, it's, it's a really, really fascinating uh, structure that they put together. I thought it was... A very solid job by some investment bankers and some really good attorneys. So, so me, Goldman, I've said negative things about you. I take some of them back. Let, let me just let me just see if I understand. So, the original bondholders, they've they've bought some bull market special covenant light deal that had no restrictions on the underlying assets that presumably they had some security against being transferred out, and Correct. so somebody has figured that out. At Goldman, yep. probably. And they've yep. said, what you should do is the, the most stable part of your business or the most attractive part of this business at the moment is not flying the planes. It's the, um, the mileage program that you have. So we can take that business, with my little air quotes, we can take that business out, put that into a separate entity. We're going to make that mm -hmm. bankruptcy remote. Then we it can was a hundred percent wholly owned subsidiary, right? So it was structured as a separate business unit anyway. It and was, then okay. yes, then they put it into a bankruptcy remote entity. How do you do that? They just transferred the intellectual property assets. I'm not a hundred percent sure. And I'm, it's gone. I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I you know, I I haven't done like a super deep dive on the on the thing. I was flipping through it last night, and as I was reading, I was like, this is incredible. Like, whoever structured this did a really good job for their client, and a really bad job for existing bondholders. Would you would you if you were if you were the bag holder in the original bonds, would you want to litigate that transaction? You know, assuming that it goes, it goes. They've probably got some period of time, right? They've got to hold on for bankruptcy over a period of time. Otherwise, you can look back to a transaction like that. I don't think so, man, because like it's not I don't think it's like a fraudulent conveyance claim. I mean, now we're talking about stuff that I barely remember from law school. But I mean, the reason that they're doing they're saying it, bankruptcy's not here. It's not it's it's not in it's a bankruptcy remote. We're not thinking about bankruptcy at this point. Yeah. And honestly, man, like they're not. I, I mean, they're they're clearly Scott Kirby from the jump has been the most nervous out of the big four CEOs. And he has got he cut the deepest and he's got the most liquidity. So, I mean, this, this guy is going like super serious about saving the equity of the company. Um, I think they should issue shares here. I don't know why they aren't. Um, especially since I think the equity has got a pretty nice bid. Um, have they spoken but, to Robin hood? 
They they and to be fair, I should be fair to him. He has he has issued equity once, and then I think they're registered to issue it again. So it's not as if he's just levering it up. This is like that capitalism. In order to save the equity, we have to destroy it. I mean, they need a lot of liquidity. You know, liquidity matters more than anything for them right now. And they've got, I think, eventually, though, like, you put enough people in line in front of you, there's not much left over for you. I know. There's a reason that I've told everyone that's buying the equity, I think you guys are making a mistake. And if United now has done this to their balance sheet. I would be shocked if Americans not having the same conversation. And now you have a system that had four healthy participants, and now you have two of the biggest ones are limping at a minimum. Uh, I same old airline story. Yeah, I mean, this is why Buffett sold. It's what I mean. You know, he's seen this movie. Uh, now it might work. I mean, you might have enough consolidation to come out of this that's very possible but i think the odds are are people back flying again are we are we what sort of capacity are we at do you have any idea i think the last time i looked uh i do like a five-day average and i think it was down like 78 percent united's ticket ticket cost business (laughs) yeah i i dude i think that i think that i don't mean to laugh at them i feel bad and i really do like scott kirby but dude what a shitty year to take over I think um, I think I saw that they said their their ticketed passengers are down ninety percent in May. Running a hub, like you need all that throughput through a hub. You know, Oof. good place to Oof. good place to base the options and the restricted stock units. Get them get them mm. priced in here. Get a big slug. Just see if you can fly it through. Get it out the other side. Make some real money. I don't. Yeah, I don't know that. I mean, look, I'm sure they'll do some of that. I don't know that Scott Kirby. He doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. He like, I don't know. He strikes me. as I like him. What do you I mean? Like he him. doesn't strike you. They're all that kind of guy. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I get it. I get what you're saying. I fully expect American to do that. I, I hate those guys. Probably for like no reason. But I don't understand running a levered buyback strategy on an airline. It just doesn't make sense to me. I think ICANN tried that in the 80s. I think it's been tried quite a few times. I don't think anybody's tried it, uh, succeeded in it, but everybody. yeah, maybe this time. Maybe. Fundamentals don't matter. Why don't we talk about your section now? See that? At well, one o'clock, I, mean, I when, that when do you When do we stop touching the hot stove of Cove Light? Like, this happens every single cycle. Why do, how do, this is supposed to be smart money buying this stuff. Memories are too short. Dude, what is that? I, then in March, here I thought everything was going to get recapped and the bondholders are going to own everything. So I, do, I don't have, I don't know, but this is the problem with Cove Light. I mean, when I was reading this transaction, I was like, oh, Jim Grant would have like, you know, a wet dream over this after how much he's written, written about. I mean, this basically is just like unsecured credit card debt for the, for the, uh, right? There's nothing backing these bonds now. Some airplanes that no one wants to fly. Yeah, well, it's not even the airplanes because all those are that yeah, well, and they're all mortgaged through asset backed facilities. I mean, you basically you have the op, op or like basically the hold co of the airline, I think is or maybe the opco. I'm not sure exactly what I'm trying to say, but yes, you have the fundamental operating businesses cash generation now, which is like not the most fun thing in the world to own. We you forget that Davy Day traders out there long jets, so that's uh, that's good. That's going to keep on working for a long time, I'd say. 
Now, to be fair, the structure of the deal, they have like a, they got a free cash flow sweep that like it's going to pay down. And, you know, I mean, I don't think United is going to disband, um, but uh, I don't know. It certainly increases the probability. It's not good for the current bondholders. No. Jake Tricks. <laughs> is he? Is he stuck? <laughs> I think so, yeah. All right. Well, I'll uh, I'll move on to my... You do you, and then when he comes back, we'll, we'll catch him we'll up. loop him back in. Yeah. He's heard it. He's heard it. I've told him this one before. So, great. Uh, is systematic value dead? Cliff has a post. Cliff Asness from AQR has a post on it. And then there's a paper that accompanies... Well, the, pa- the, the post accompanies the paper. Um, there's lots of good stuff in the paper. Basically, the idea is that they were going to... They're trying to go through and identify each narrative about why value's not working, and then to kill the uh, to kill that narrative. And this is one of the last things buried at the end of the paper. I just found it kind of interesting because it's just it's just funny. Like it, it's not this is not necessarily about value investing. This is a fundamental investing question. So wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, I know that growth and value are tied at the hip, but you could be more growthy than than value is that is that right bill are growth and value tied at the I, hip i think they're tied at the hip i need to i need to go back to the uh, to the tape for that one but yeah i think so it looks like I they're tied at the that. hip yeah something about the hip so the question is how important are fundamentals to stock price performance it's kind of interesting so the way they set it up they have to create a test where it's not a test of uh value skill or, or like value so what they do is they they say, and this is this is an example, this is not the way they do it because they run it backwards, but they say, let's get the 2022 forecast from 2021. So the forecast that will be made in 2021 for 2022 and make it appear as if they're available now. So it's, it's they're explicitly cheating to do this. And if you had this uh, strategy available to, if you had this data available to you, you're you're looking into the future, so it's explicitly look ahead bias, and of course what that are cre- they forecasting the earnings. Or- earnings, yeah. Okay. In the future, so you 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 don't get the actual earnings number. You just get the you get the uh, the projection, but it's available a year in advance, which is not that's not real world. They they make it very clear that it's an explicit cheat, and of course that strategy generates incredibly high sharp ratios. If you get an idea what's going to happen in the future. But the problem is that it, it, it varies from year to year. You don't get very high sharp ratios every single year. And so the two years uh, that it didn't work in the 1990s, in 1998 and 1999, it was negatively correlated. It was a low sharp ratio, but it was a negative sharp ratio. What that means is that the, uh, the better the fundamentals or the closer you got to picking the fundamentals, the worse you did in that year, in 1988 and 1999 it's true also for 2019 and 2020 it's unusual it doesn't usually happen just kind of an i just find it it's it's i find it kind of hilarious that there are these 20 years apart i mean to your to your point before that how do people how people's memories so short i guess not there are not many people around who are around them that even 20 years ago now but it's kind of amazing to me that fundamentals basically uh provide a negative uh, the more you concentrate on fundamentals, the worse you've done over the last two years. And the last time that happened was 98, 99. So, buy? <laughs> well, pretty sure clever. that's what I take. If that's you, what I heard. So, don't concentrate on fundamentals. You've got to use something else. 
Scrabble. You got to find David. Yeah, Scrabble and David Day Traders channel. That's how you do it. The, the only thing that I don't know about this is like how much of uh, the finding is because people are basically just requiring less return. Um, because that that matters a lot in the math. I mean, if if people have just like thrown in the towel and said, you know what, if I can get four to five percent out of equities, if bonds give me one or half or I'm worried about it going negative, you can I mean, you can talk yourself into paying pretty rich prices, even if the fundamentals don't look very good in the front years. Yeah, I don't know. I that. just I just don't know if that's part of what's driving the behavior. Yeah, I, I I don't know what the uh, I don't know what's driving it, but I, I do you, do you think that it's because people's preferences for forward returns are lower? Like, do you think that that's the thought process? No, I think what's going on right now is if you are running outside capital, it is really really hard to look at your clients and say I'm going to bail on tech and everything that you can sleep well at night and go long financials or something that you have like pretty substantial business risk right now in the middle of a business risk. You know, I mean, like Blackstone, uh, Schwartzman, I, I was watching him today and he was like, we're not going into challenge business models because of valuation. Like we're just completely avoiding it. And that's our strategy right now. And I think that's a lot of people's strategy because I don't think that most people are worried about valuations re-rating down in the next 18 to 24 months. And I think that they're terrified that, uh, you know, a second outbreak could actually destroy, um, you know, the businesses that they're investing. Yeah, that's right. Or, I mean, banks or retail or anything that, like, has a lot of... Yeah, that's right. So I think that's what's going on. Do you see, like, we've had this... We've had this resurgence in the number of uh, cases and the... the, um, the hospitalizations seem to be up in in other parts of the country, not the hotspots previously. That's not really reflected in the market at the moment, is it? It's, it doesn't appear to be. I haven't. I mean, I don't know how much we've sold off uh, and how much the cyclicals have sold off. I really don't know. Now, I I mean, I guess the one pushback that I would have to why the market should sell off is I thought that one of the biggest risks to the next round of fiscal stimulus was Republicans saying no. And now you're seeing a lot of the Republican states are having flare ups. So the idea that they're not going to try to help their own people now, I think that's been reduced. So you might actually see a lot more fiscal stimulus. Uh, I mean, I continue to think cash is a really, really risky thing to hold here. I just, I just think they're going to do everything that they can to incinerate the value of it. So what's a good? Well, in that case, buy gold, right? Gold's bounced today. I can make. I mean, I, I could hold buy it. Buy Bitcoin. You know, I, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I LVMH something, Hermes something that's got pricing power. I can understand that, but you got to pay a shit ton to buy it. It's not. I mean, you got valuation risk in there. If rates ever go up a lot, I mean, you're going to get hammered. But I don't know that that's what the risk that i would worry about the most right now that said it's a perpetual asset so you gotta I saw think something interesting in grants that was from yesterday we talking about that the i think there's like four trillion dollars expected to 
need to, in bond issues like we're basically deficits of four trillion this year is that a lot i don't even know anymore <laughs> <laughs> well i think it's a lot yeah i don't know those numbers don't even mean anything anymore but uh and like the fed right now is on pace to buy like a quarter of that something like that so the question then is like who's gonna buy the other three trillion dollars worth and at what price that's kind of the other thing do you, you have know? the answer because i really i'd really like to know <laughs> Well, it's hard to imagine that the they Fed's going to eat it all, it surely. Okay, so what does that mean for us then? Well, they, they're going to buy four trillion. Like they're basically going to like double their balance sheet uh, again from a year ago. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that's. I mean, the answer though, is maybe, right? I don't know. How long can you can you do it, and how long can the system withstand it, and? Should we run America like an LBO? Uh, I think those are all valid questions. We're, we're already doing that. I know. It's That's why I said, like, my beef was with the last three years. And even if you want to go back further than that, like, it's we. the problem with Keynesianism is no one actually wants to tighten the belt when times are good. They just want to keep spending. So That's like, one problem that's with Keynesianism. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I think that that's a fair... I think that uh, Keynes would probably agree with you that you people go. have bastardized his name in that that way and didn't they don't save for the rainy days ever right it's just more and more and more so you're just yeah. just to go back to something you said before so cash is trash now you want to you want to pin that to the top of the feed no I don't I mean I don't think it like I haven't I, I don't think cash has done particularly well over the last 10 years, right? It's just I I, I don't think that uh, – I mean, my cash balance is half of what I ran coming into this year. Uh, Berkshire is less of my portfolio but has been making up a lot more lately. That's what I've been buying mostly. I bought some more Schwab recently. Um I have more corporate debt than I have, but I view it closer to equity. I mean, like those United bonds are basically an equity position. I own some Transdyne bonds. Why, why do you say they're an equity position? Because they, you think that potentially the equity actually gets wiped out and they become equity? equity or they're going to behave like equity? I just think I, I, you're so deeply subordinated structurally that I don't think that you can look at it like you've got a second way out. I think you're you're either getting paid back with your cash flow or a refi. And unless you've got two ways out, I don't really think about it like debt. I think it's closer to equity risk. But if equity gets wiped out or they issue more equity, I'm ahead of them on that. So I sort of think of it maybe closer to a preferred stock. What about like the long bond or something like that? instead of cash because that tends to rally in a uh, in a crash i'd just rather own gold if i had to choose like i don't know how i i couldn't get like super long interest rates here i don't know i thought it was It'd be hard if, for me there's an interesting study that looked at uh the one that dan rasmus and verdad brought out on monday it said that um you know they had in the late 1990s japan had a similar cut well not similar but japan had a bubble in in everything and the things that had suffered in the run-up were small value, as you can imagine, and real estate. And then they naturally they outperformed afterwards. But one of the interesting things that I saw was that the thing, one of the things that's done quite well through that period, is the JGBs. Yeah, I think it. What he said was it didn't it didn't do well, but it it still served as a diversifier. So a sixty forty portfolio still still worked. Like it it, it took some of the volatility out. 
I, without I, too much change in return. So it helped the sharp ratio, basically. Right. My gut is like, this is almost how I view SAS. Like, if I were going to get a really long duration bond, I'd rather just buy something like Tyler. I mean, it's like their free cash flow yield out of the gate is virtually nil. But at least it's growing, and I you're selling to governments, and you could probably take them to the cleaners on price. Like I I could see it being a growthy bond. I could see losing a lot, but um, I just that's why I don't know. I'm just not comfortable taking a whole bunch of interest rate risk. Let's um let's start taking some questions. I've got a few good ones in here. Uh, could BRK be a risky investment? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, care to expand? No, Could well, be a lot of B, B, BRKs coming for. It's, oh, those are. It's uh, you're very long financials. I mean, if you have like a huge default cycle and the U.S. doesn't bounce back, and for some reason there's another. I mean, the insurance market should get hard. Berkshire Hathaway Energy is a hell of an asset. The railroad's a hell of an asset. I don't. I don't think you're gonna have like some permanent loss if you have the ability to sit but could it be a disappointing investment over the long term yeah it could underperform for sure plus a lot of the values in apple which i have a hard time getting there on the valuation for apple right now so i wouldn't want to buy apple now but would you sell it now if i was buffett yeah like me well if you if you held it would you sell it yeah i probably would you think it's that expensive i sold it lower than here so yeah uh, I, I don't think, um, I know Buffett's a hold forever kind of guy. I'm just, I, I, I can understand why he, like, even on a valuation basis, I think that, you know, buying one, buying is one thing, selling it here. Like I kind of, I'm not sure. I know I'm a deep value guy and I'm sort of, this is not what I do. I'm talking outside what I do, but I, I, I can see that you would potentially just hold and not worry about it here. I thought that, uh, my man, Jerry Cap had the best articulation of the never sell philosophy that I've, I've heard thus far. And he was like, never selling is not about a single trial. It's about a philosophy that adds to, you know, yeah. a, a portfolio of those adds to superior outcomes. And I was like, all right, I, I sort of buy that. Like you're, you're removing one behavioral aspect from the equation. It's it a lifestyle. Sense. Yeah. Well, dude, I mean. It's worked out well for Buffett and Munger. Helps to have Buffett putting them in the front end, though. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. So I got an interesting one here. Uh, don't companies with huge pensions really benefit if the dollar is debased? Well, I think it depends on the structure. It of does what a little bit. But it's kind of a, yeah, it's kind of an interesting question. Like somebody's getting hosed there, right? You either either the company gets hosed or the people who are the beneficiaries of the pensions get hosed. That's ugly. So if we're talking about debasement, I assume that like we're sort of thinking just of lots of printing. Like, like if we print a lot, yeah, yeah. So that would be inflationary generally, right? Would you associate those two things? Yeah, it no? has to be. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think debt holders and pension holders, anyone with that is counting on a fixed amount to come back to them, yes, they are the losers. Are there many f- defined pension benefit guarantees around anymore? There aren't really, are there? They got rid of them a while ago. Yeah, I don't think there's Legacy. many. Maybe in the financial industry, there were a couple in the early 2000s, but I don't think you have many left. Well, a lot of the companies have been trying to buy out the employees from them. Yeah. I've seen that quite a bit. Like Boeing, does Boeing have one? Do you guys know? That would be one that might still have one. I don't know. Yeah. Their union contracts are fucked up. 
sounds technical. That's that's a technical bankruptcy. Technical turned. for for one sided. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to my buddy that's there. I was like, oh my goodness, how do you manage through that? He said like you'll have you know, one guy does the rivets, right? Like he and he's the only guy that can do the rivets, and he'll go get drunk for like three days and not show up. Well, like you gotta change your manufacturing around that guy's drinking schedule because like it's so hard you can't just fire him for cause like he said the the contracts are insane that's lean manufacturing there no, not exactly so i got another good question here uh is it better to own gold companies instead of gold itself like newcrest mining i, I don't know i'm I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to that idea. As I, it does seem like there's more gearing there uh, to the price of gold. However, it seems like a lot of times the costs of the company go up just as much as the price of gold does, and you end up like sort of treading water. I don't. And there's there's a lot of question marks about the uh, capital allocation decisions of gold mining managements. So. I don't know. It's that's a tough one. I've spent a little bit of time thinking about this and and uh, testing it. So there's a few things that I would say. One is that the gold miners tend to be more sensitive to the movements in gold than gold itself. So it's like a levered bet on gold. So if you have a view, you might be able to express it through like a gold mining ETF more than the underlying gold itself. The other thing is I had a I had a uh, the guy who introduced me to value investing. He was a uh, who was an econometrics professor at the university that I went to, he said exactly what you just said. When you look at um, the, the margins for gold mining companies and other kind of miners stay pretty steady because in the boom times, and this is something that we were talking about earlier, the, the cost of the inputs gets so much more expensive that they never really have that really good blockbuster. They do have better years because they mine more, but they, it's still much more expensive for them. So the margins aren't ever as good as you think they're going to be. Although you do have the energy helping you now, like your cost of input for energy is lower than it's probably been the last five years. So that's a bonus. The, the, the other thing I was going to say is I went to a value investing congress like a long time, 2010, maybe even earlier than that. And the first person I talked to, they were like, oh, my big idea is I'm going to buy long dated puts on the, on the junior gold explorers with the highest cost base. Because when gold goes up, they're the ones that show the most profit, you know, because they got, they, they flick into profitability and then they move a lot. And so you buy OTM options on that. It's just a massive levered bet on big move up in gold. So if you believe on it, this is not financial advice. You're going to lose all of your money if you do it, but they move a lot if it happens. Yeah, there is something kind of interesting about the idea of taking, call it worthless pieces of paper and then trading them for the, the productive capacity to you know, get this sift through all this earth to pull out these little pieces of that are hard to come by. And then as like inflation comes, you give back the pieces of paper, uh, you know, because the gold is getting so much more. You would think that that might work really well somehow in a sort of a like outside the matrix uh, idea. It's a, you know, the, the way to make a lot of money is when, when your commodity is absolutely trashed, like coal or whatever, you go and buy you get a you get a uh well i know uh, there's a australian guy who did this he was an electrician in the uh coal mining industry and gold got completely bombed out and he put down a million dollars on a 30 million dollar deposit and by the 
a million dollar option on a thirty million dollar deposit, and so he just borrowed against his business. And then when Cole came back, I think someone paid him. I forget the exact number, but it was like a hundred million or three hundred million for that, which he took in stock, and then he. Then that company got a bid and he rolled that into another thing. And he ended up for a million dollar loan, rolling on a coal deposit, turned it into about 500 million. And then he dusted the lot because he couldn't stop. Oh, that always happens. He rode it all the way back to zero. I'm hot. (laughs) He spent about $100 million on racehorses. My boss commented that he just decided that $400 million was enough for one man to live on. I'm sure there are some Aussies who know who that is. I'm just looking at like the GDX, which is the gold miners versus GLD, and I, they don't seem like particularly correlated to me. I th- you just I don't know with the miners, you're introducing a lot of risk that's that is not pure gold risk. Um, but people that know what they're doing like it, right? Like Sprott and Grant and those guys know gold a whole lot better than I do, and they're always pitching gold miners. But I don't know how much of that's because their business depends on pitching that shit versus like whether or not they believe in it. Hard to tell. So this is a good question. Is value dead because of winner-take-all industries? Seems like mean reversion of junkier competitors is dead like retail, legacy tech. Value and mean reversion are tied at the hip. What's legacy tech? Is that like airplanes and radio and... (laughs) Railways. (laughs) Railways. Steel. Steel's tech. Was once. Steel was tech. Very tech. I think that's a really good question, but the thing is, we've always had uh, we've always had technological evolution. We've had, as we were just pointing out, we've had it forever. We've had railways were tech, uh, survived that. The space race and all the stuff that came out of that was tech. Electrification, that's tech. Like rolling out electricity everywhere, that's at least as important as rolling out the internet everywhere, right? And values yeah. always come back. I just think it's you get big booms, and when the big booms happen. We, stuff just gets untethered from the fundamentals and it, this one's persisted for much longer than probably anybody thought was possible but then we've had a central bank that's been much more activist than we've ever seen in the past maybe that helps inspire the uh, the animal spirits a little bit except for maybe the 1920s that's fair <laughs> as a uh, if you if you like analogies and history rhyming well what's the, guess- what's the sorry no, no, I guess I, I'm just thinking about like what what would be value right now uh, and it it would probably be full of industrial and financial type companies uh, if you were to look. I don't know, is that true? I mean, what's in there, Toby? You know better than I do. There's some financials, there's some energy, but I got a portfolio of stuff that's not. It's I think it's just cheap. I mean, it's cheap on a ratio basis. It's cheap on a you d- you DCF. Anything that's cheap on a ratio basis, you DCF it, it's going to wind up being cheap. Because your, your growth assumptions are so modest. I mean, that's the point of doing the, the expectations analysis. Like, if your yield is so fat, you, you can put in really, really modest assumptions for growth and you still got an NPV that's much higher than where it's trading right now. So, like, here's a good example. Wells, my boy, uh, the science of hitting investing, he tweeted this out the other day. I think, he, I think they've quadrupled book value since 2004 or something like that okay that's not like a horrible outcome the problem is the price to book contracted from three to like 0.8 so you know that's one of those like i don't know as well as not a compounder is it a crappy business no it was a bad stock you paid too much 
Right. Like, so. Uh, now imagine know, that same thing happening to all everything. of the expensive stocks. Yeah. And all of the cheap stocks seeing a little bit of it going the other way, and that's that's exactly how value and growth work together. Right. So like, I don't, is Wells dead? I, I would say probably not. Uh, if the you know multiple doesn't go up and they're going to eventually unless they are dead be able to return some capital to shareholders and i think that's a common denominator of what you see buffett look for is usually some sort of capital return plus a reasonable entry multiple and eventually that's what a like, strategy that should work yeah exactly right it's like it's thought out that makes sense yeah if only one of us ran that strategy oh wait one of us does it doesn't work. I can tell you it doesn't work. It doesn't work in well, the 14 we'll months see. or something. We'll see. No, but it I, works. I think it works that really makes well. Sense, right? So I don't, I don't see how that strategy long term, uh, I, I don't see how that could die. That seems to be a rational strategy to deploy. The market is just, you know, in the short term, the market does what the market's going to do. We all know that. that Buffett's, Graham said it a million times. Buffett said it a million times. It's just the case that if you rely on. If you rely on a little bit of um, irrationality or, or you know, subnormal rationality for your purchase decisions, you can't get too upset when it doesn't immediately manifest. The market doesn't get immediately rational after you buy something, and you're always looking at things that you know. It, it, there's got to be a little question, otherwise it doesn't get cheap. You got to resolve that question one way or the other. Going to make mistakes when you do that, but the idea is that you get paid when you write asymmetrically. That's that's the entire strategy, but it doesn't work in the short term. Or well, every and time. like a lot of businesses got impaired over this time. I mean, if you're going to own an asset for a perpetual duration, which is basically what equity is, like you're going to have some shitty years. Uh, it's like you know, I mean, a marriage. You're not going to like who you're married to every single day. You just hope that you get through it together. Uh, you know, or at least that's clearly how my wife feels. I feel differently. I love her all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I digress. Uh, well played. You know, it's it just seems to me that there are some situations that people are saying, oh, this is dead. And I think it's sort of like the way the path, this is just how the cards came out. It's not like it was predestined to happen. So I suspect that in the future, it may look better. And usually it looks better when everybody says it's dead. But there's no guarantee it might be dead. Who knows? I don't know what the heck's going on. You know tomorrow as well as I do. Is there anything about the internet in particular, though, that this winner-take-all will mean that the like the the profit pool of the entire world, like all the world's businesses, are tend to accumulate more there on the the internet than it is, like say, in the world of of atoms? I, yeah, I think that the internet tends to have winner-take-all effects within internet businesses but i don't know that that means that all the business like i don't see how that's going to affect the aggregate earnings of utilities for instance but yeah like i think i think twitter is never going to be facebook isn't, I, isn't that true of most industries facebook. though don't most industries yeah. wind up with a handful of dominant players and they cut yeah, yeah they, relative scale advantages they either consolidate or they just grow there by themselves and then they the, the competition for the most part becomes, to, to use Munger's words, much more gentlemanly by the time they get there. And they yeah. all do pretty well. And I think the problem, too, with the internet is like the scale, the scale combined with fixed costs, like you can get some real barriers to entry going um, once Isn't you're that at the scale. the same argument everyone made about 
Exxon when it was the most expensive company in the in the 2000s. Narrative like, follows it was price. Scale, no one can keep up. Yeah, narrative it's harder follows to price. Enter the oil or the internet industry than it is the oil industry. Come on, no way. run that again. Yes, fuck yes. You guys think <laughs> try that again? You think it's easier to compete with Facebook than to get some dummy to give you money to drill a hole in the ground to sell oil? Well, that's like super easy to do. You are we talking about competing with a junior oil explorer? I can do that. Are we talking about competing with Exxon? That's a different question. That's fair, but I think that you have more chance. It comp- like you can exist in uh, the oil market, so so the collective you can enter, which is basically what we saw with the shale industry, right? Like there, if it's easier, then why aren't the v- every VC company funding shale drillers and not SAS? Because there's no money in it. Like the the profit pool of oil is of like, energy. Uh, it's pretty crushed. Yeah. It was winner take all for the. I never said that about oil. I said that about tech. And there's a ton of money going into tech right now. I think it's harder to compete. So why aren't people funding competitive products? Because it's really hard to compete. I think they do. And I think that Instagram would have eaten Facebook's lunch, but Facebook bought Instagram. I think TikTok is now eating Instagram's lunch. And I think that... and I, I always say this, but it's just the oldies don't... The youngsters don't want to be on the same platform as the oldies. That's all it is. And so it won't be like TikTok will be TikTok will have its day in the sun and then the next thing that'll come along. Is TikTok a Chinese spy app, by the way? That's what I've read somewhere. Well, it's been true? banned in India now. It's why yeah, I, I don't have it on my phone that no one wants to see me yeah, TikTok. I don't have TikTok either. <laughs> I've got- I just think I think you've got a long way to go. And I, I was intrigued by the Twitter thesis and like, can they close the gap? And the more I learned about it, the less I think they can. Mm. Uh, time for one more. I uh, I do it. Do it. Well, it's 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 eleven thirty, so uh, we'll have to save do it for it. next week. Ah, <laughs> we all want it. Give the people what they want, Toby. Come all right, on, here we go. I've got I've got one more. Here yes. we go. Here we go. Uh. Do you think the advertisers leaving Facebook has more to do with economics than virtue signaling? That's a good question. That is a good question. I got, yeah, I got a little bit of, I got some data to answer that question, a little bit of data. So I think it's Procter & Gamble. I think their annual advertising budget is something like $12 billion. You, you got to move your head. Did you move your head so people can see? Jake's background is uh, 100% Facebook free. I think it's. I think these. This. This is roughly right. But P and G. I think they spend like a billion dollars. These numbers are probably wrong, but it's. This is roughly right. I think they spend a billion dollars a year on advertising. They've yanked their their advertising. I think only for Facebook, only in the states, and only to the tune of like twelve million dollars, something like that. <laughs> are you saying it's quite like a statement like they're making? Have- yeah. yeah. Boy, it's almost as if we're approaching a recession. They need an excuse to cut their ad budget, and Facebook happens to be the scapegoat. That's almost That's like perfect what's for actually it. going on here. Make it yes. look like it's... it's 100% what's happening. You get the virtue signal, send some smoke out there, cut what you were going to cut anyway, and you're done. Good job seeing through get, the matrix, get, questioner. Get a little bit of... And maybe you get a little bit of uh, free marketing out of it. Maybe one exactly of right. CNN picks it up. Oh, look, they, they canceled that. That's that's yeah. that's worth a lot more than twelve million bucks. Like that on yeah. CNN, run that for a day or so. 
the slam dunk decision. <sighs> All right, amigos. Does it actually show up though in Facebook's Q Q uh oh, I doubt Q2 it. numbers? I oh, doubt man, it. like their top hundred advertisers or something are like twenty five percent of revenue. Twenty. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they don't. This thing's a beast. Although Zuck did seem to blink a little bit, didn't he? He's come out and said, "We hear you were doing something different." Well, that's. I what mean, does that even what, mean? What would he? Say? Yeah, what would he say? We don't care. Like, of course, he's going to say that. But he's still. This gonna... is like, it's like throwing human tranquilizer darts at the Hulk. Like, it's not going to do anything. Uh, I think that's all we have time for. All right. Thanks, Good folks. Session, guys. It was really not fun. Long. Well, no uh, position. See you next week. <laughs>